Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. Good morning, everybody. How we doing? Some of you um, look very familiar, uh, and some of you are probably going, who's this guy? We usually get a video, and uh, I, I realize video Kenton is much more attractive than live mic, but... Um, Maybe I'll grow on you after a while. Uh, so glad that you are with us. My name is Mike Erie, and um, I have had just a wonderful last 15 years in Orange County. Um, I worked at uh, Mariners uh, up in the Irvine campus uh, for a while, and then I went to a great, great church called Rock Harbor in Costa Mesa. I was there for almost eight years, and then uh, my wife and I felt God release us. Uh, from that, and we didn't know to what until we started praying, and uh, God gave us just many, many great opportunities, but we felt like this is where he would have us be, and so we were really excited to step into what's already happening here. It's so great uh, for Tim and his crew and all the volunteers to have this thing going, and we're excited to be back uh, with Mariners. We have still so many friends there, uh, and, and so we're really excited. What we're going to do is uh, we're going to do some teaching this weekend, next weekend. Kenton comes back from his break, uh, so he'll be on video the weekend after that, and then we'll start a fall series that he and I are working on together, Why Jesus Hates Religion, uh, which should be pretty good, uh, Lord willing. And, uh, it, and it's, it always shocks people. It's like, no, Jesus didn't found a religion. He removed the need for religion at all. And, and when people say, hey, don't all religions lead to God? Uh, the answer is no, not, no religion leads to God. That's, that's why Jesus kind of showed up, is to dismantle any system of rules and regulations that somehow make us right with God Almighty. So we're really excited to explore all of that. But this morning, we're going to begin in the book of Luke. So if you have a Bible, let's go there. Uh, a couple of words uh, about the scriptures. I would highly, highly encourage you to bring uh, a Bible and to bring something to take notes in. Uh, we go all over the place through the scriptures. We'll uh, put them on the screen if you don't have uh, a Bible with you. Uh, we have some extras, but we've got a difference in translation. I preach out of the NIV, which is one translation, and, and we use the NLT here, which is a different translation. And so we'll kind of work all of that out as we go. NIV will be on the screen since that's what I have kind of memorized in the original language. Uh, and that would be very confusing. kind of like we're on a blind date you know it's like well all right who's this guy and going who are you and you need to learn to laugh at dumb jokes is uh, one thing we'll have to worry about now I've been doing the speaker thing for uh, 15 or 16 years I started when I was 10 and uh and I just used to hate it. I, I, and I, I, I mentor some younger teachers, and, and I, they hate it too. I hated getting up here and talking because I always felt so much pressure to be good. You know, it's like, and I would never want to say it, you know, we're up here serving Jesus and all glory to him, but I felt this just incredible pressure to be good. It's like, because if you're good, then people come back. And if you're really good, then people bring their friends and come back. And if you're really, really good, you know, you, you have multiple services. And I mean, it was just all of this kind of weirdness. And, and, and I had this great sense of having like, like to perform and, and be good at it. And, and I feel like sometimes in the American church, Churches have that, feel that pressure too, right? 
It's like we got to do our best. We got to showcase all that we've got going and we've got to have the best lights, the best sound, the best this, the best that. In fact, there are some churches I read about in Easter, during Easter, who were giving away cars if you showed up. Like seriously, if you, if you came and filled out a card and put it in the offering basket, you could, you could register to win a car. And, and, you know, iPods and bikes and scooters. I mean, it was crazy. And, and, and there, isn't there an impulse that's good in all of that, right? There's an impulse that's good. A good to, to want to be good. Good to want to be excellent. Good to want to remove all the barriers and make it as, as attractive as possible for people to show up. But I also think there's an impulse that's kind of dangerous in that. Wouldn't you agree? There's, there's this sense, because the underlying premise there is that Jesus by himself, the gospel by itself, isn't like attractive enough. And so we got to polish it up a little bit. we gotta, we got to remove some of the edges. It, it's like we've ceased being astonished by God, so we have to like be entertained a little bit in the meantime. And the thing that's so amazing as I read the Gospels is that Jesus himself never begged, never bribed, never overpromised. The American church, come to Jesus and you'll be wealthy. Come to Jesus, we'll give you a free set of steak knives. Come to Jesus and, and you know, he'll heal everything. I mean, we make these incredible promises. And Jesus, Jesus never did that. I mean, imagine if you would, you have a daughter. Imagine she's 20 years old. And imagine that she's been dating a guy for three years. The guy comes to her one day and says, listen, we've been dating for three years. And I just need to take a break from dating. Because I've, I've had this image in my mind of what my dream girl was going to be. And I just need some time to sort out whether we should get married or whether I should pursue kind of my idea of the dream girl. Now, suppose this is your daughter who hears that. Dads, what do you say? Do you say, oh, go ahead and wait, honey. He's definitely, yeah. Hope, pray he chooses you. Is that what you say? No. You say, let me make it easier for him right now. Right? What do you say to your daughter? You're worth more than that. And, and there's this sense that you get from Jesus that Jesus is doing the same thing about people who are a bit ambivalent about worshiping God. He never begged anybody. He never pleaded with anybody. Luke chapter 19. I love what he does here. Jesus was remarkably free from caring about what people thought of him. Luke chapter 19, we'll start in verse 37. When Jesus came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. They were saying, Blessed be the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd, some of the religious leaders, said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They were being unseemly. They weren't being properly reverent. And what's Jesus say? I love this. I tell you, if they are quiet, the rocks will start singing. Does this strike you as a God who's lonely? As a God who's real desperate for people to worship him? 
as a God who's depressed because you haven't chosen today to invest time? I mean, there is this segment in Christianity that has ceased being amazed with God and now needs all sorts of spit and polish to kind of make him amazing again. And I think Jesus would say to those of us, because that, that runs right through my heart too. I think Jesus would say to those of us, you know, it's okay. If you've got better things to do, go for it. It, it really is okay. I got rocks that will be praising me. It's cool. It's like God in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1, they're bringing these really cruddy offerings, these deformed offerings to him. And God just says, why don't we just close the doors of the temple? Because this, like, like, I don't need this. My name will be made great throughout the earth. He just says it. It will be made great. It's not that he's lucky to have us, right? He's not begging us. We should be begging for the privilege of worshiping. It just totally shames me to recognize that right now, in the most remotest, most remotest, the most remote parts of the world, people are praising Jesus under the threat of death without air conditioning, chairs, childcare, comfy theater seats, right? And there's this sense that what Jesus is really looking for aren't people who have a lot of other stuff going. If you got other stuff going, he would just say, great, I love you. Go do your other stuff. It's not like I get stoked because you put 10 bucks in the little thing as it goes by. Or, or you take two hours out to listen to some kind of big guy you don't know. And so what I want to look at this morning are just a series of episodes where Jesus encounters people who are passionately clear about who he is and they will do anything to get close to him. Luke chapter 18. For some of you, these are very, very familiar stories. Luke chapter 18, we'll start in verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging when he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, which was a messianic title, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, verse 39 is so interesting. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. Now, this road they were on from Jericho to Jerusalem was long, dangerous, but it was well, well-traveled because a lot of the rich folks had summer homes in Jericho. So the elite of Jerusalem, the religious elite, the political elite would, would travel this road with kind of large groups for safety, and it was a good place to be begging. So we come across a dude who's got absolutely nothing going for him. The, the theology of the day said that if you were blind, if you had leprosy, if there was anything wrong with you, it was either the sin of your parents or your sin, and that you were getting what you deserved. Okay, so this guy's got nothing going for him, and all he can do is cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy. The folks tell him to shut up, and this is what I love. What does he do in verse 40? Or excuse me, um, verse 39. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David! Have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? I want to see. And then Jesus heals the man. Now, 
Have you ever been around really messy, desperate people? I mean, let's talk about other people. We're, we're, we're never messy and desperate. But, you know, the people that are messy and desperate, right? Have you been, ever been around somebody in recovery for an addiction? They're not, they're not real polished. Because polished, has the pressure to be polished is one of the reasons they've gotten down the wrong path, right? They're just kind of like, listen, I'm ruthlessly honest about dealing with this. I have to be in order to deal with it. Like messy people aren't put together. Messy people aren't, they don't, they're not schooled in all the proper religiousness. Messy people were the kind of people shouting for Jesus. And when Jesus comes across somebody like that, he absolutely loves it. The rest of his entourage is telling this dude to be quiet. But he shouts all the more. Do desperate people worry a lot about what other people think? Are desperate people real obsessed about upsetting the proper religious authorities? No! There's there, this dude, there's something about him, and I'll do anything to get a hold of him. I'll do anything to get his attention. Right? I mean, we could go to other stories where literally in the Greek language, four dudes unroof a roof and lower their friend down in front of Jesus. And I imagine Jesus being excited. Or a, a sinful woman, a notoriously sinful woman, interrupts a dinner party just to wipe his feet. See, anytime Jesus came across folks who were, had passionate clarity about how great he was, he blessed them. But when he came across folks that were like, eh, I could take it or leave it, he'd say, okay, well then leave it. Because this movement, it's for people who aren't going to dip their toes in it. This, this isn't for half steps. This isn't for the faint of heart. Did you just say something in the middle of a message? You just were responsive to me? You're not just going to sit there passively? Are you serious? What's your name? Marie? Marie, stand up. Come on, Marie. This is the face. Wow, Marie, my new favorite person in the second row. Nope, Marie. Go to Luke chapter 5. couple of stories you know. Jesus never begged. Jesus never bribed. I mean, if he's, we've lost people who are astonished. If we just said, hey guys, we're going to have a meeting this week and we're just going to pray. That's all we're going to do is pray. How many, how many of us would just rearrange our calendars just to be there, right? My heart immediately says, oh boy, I know I should, and I know I don't want to, and which voice is going to win, you know? It's like, maybe I can come up with a family obligation because that's totally okay. Well, i got a family obligation. The church is so, totally fine, right? But how many of us are just captured by the person of Jesus? See, that is what has happened to the American church. We've ceased being astonished by him, and so we settle for the smoke and the mirrors and the substitutes. We just want to be reminded of the kind of clarity that he valued, that came from desperation, that came from conviction, that came from passion. Luke chapter 5, we'll start in verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Now, many of you know the backstory on leprosy, right? 
the disease was itself awful. You, you would, one of the many things that happened, but primarily you would lose the feeling in your nerves, in your extremities, and working inward. And so if you were to cut yourself, you wouldn't know it. It would get infected. It would ooze and bleed. And I mean, it was just, it was horrifying. But alongside of the disease itself was the social stigma that went along with it. Many of you guys who know your New Testaments know that lepers were cast aside. You were removed from your marriage, removed from your children, removed from your synagogue, removed from the life of the village, your trade, your family. You were put in a colony of your own kind. People were not allowed to touch you because it was thought the disease itself was communicable. It would infect you. But it was also known that if you were somebody who was concerned about staying clean before God, ceremonially, if you were to touch a leper, you'd be infected not only with his disease, but with his uncleanliness, and you couldn't worship yourself. As a result, lepers had to walk around, and whenever they were in public spaces, they would have to give warning of their approach. Unclean! Unclean! is what they would have to shout within 100 feet of people. People would throw rocks at you, spit at you. You were untouchable, unredeemable, unforgivable cast aside completely. So when a leper shows up, it's like parting the Red Sea. You've got lots of crowds. Here comes the leper. Everybody gets out of the leper's way. Now notice what this leper does. He fell with his face to the ground and begged him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I pray, begging isn't the word I would use. Ordering off a menu is kind of the picture that comes to mind right? Jesus, I'd like a double portion of peace. Hold the suffering. Bless me. Hold the trials. May I have a triple portion of joy, right? I mean, there, it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, it's okay, but begging, falling face down. I mean, these aren't like cultural values we have. I mean, when we worship, we like it nice. I mean, I kind of worship like, yeah, Jesus, you're all right. I like this song. Man, the band sounds really good today. There isn't a face downness to my worship of Jesus. But when Jesus comes across somebody who is so broken that he falls face down and begs him, he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He doesn't say heal me. He says, make me clean. Restore my standing in the community so I can worship, so I can serve, so I can participate in family life. And Jesus, mean, old, judgmental Jesus, looks at him and says, no way, dude. you got to memorize the Bible first. He looks at him and he says, no way. you got to go to church for three weeks. And then we'll see. No, what's it say? Verse 13, Jesus reached out his hand and what, Rommelfangers? Touched him. You've heard this. Touched him. Now, in English, it's like, okay, that's cool. It's a cool Sunday school story. Hope our kids learn about it in kids' ministry someday. You don't understand what touching a leper meant. Like, you don't do that. Like, early in, in, in the 80s, when AIDS, some of you are old enough to remember when AIDS and HIV kind of exploded on the scene, and there was all this confusion about how it was transmitted and what was going on. Like, those are the people Jesus would touch. Whoever the cast-offs are, whoever the marginalized is, the misfits, the deformed, the handicapped, those were the people he loved. So he falls down in front of Jesus, and Jesus simply says, 
touches him. He touches him. Now, we know Jesus can heal long distance, right? He can calm a storm just by talking to it. He can rebuke a fever. I mean, he could have commanded the leprosy to go, but he touches the guy. So the touching was intentional. What the touching meant is that his goodness and cleanliness and holiness was stronger than anything unclean about that guy. See, religion tells us that you've got to get cleaned up first before you're acceptable to God. Jesus tells us, no, 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 no. He's the one who cleans us up. And so if you're new to church, if you're new to Jesus, like fundamentally, you have to know. And this is where the church screws it up sometimes. You don't have to get cleaned up. You don't have to get your addictions handled. You don't have to get your relationships restored. You don't have to figure it all out first. Fell down and he begged. And Jesus touched the man and said, I am willing to make you clean. Be clean. That's what Jesus does. That's why he's worthy of all of this. He touches the untouchable. He redeems the unredeemable. He forgives the unforgivable. But if you got other options, it's like, well, go to Luke chapter 9. We meet some folks who have other options, and this just blows my mind what Jesus does. Verse 57. As they, Jesus and the disciples. By the way, how are we doing? You guys all right? No, 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 you don't have to clap. I mean, thank you. Better than throwing things, I'll definitely take it. Just making sure we're all hanging in there. Ready? Can't see you. There you are. Hi, everybody. Some of you look awake. Thank you. Verse 57. As they, Jesus and the disciples, were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, if I'm Jesus, which is a dangerous game to play, but if I'm Jesus, what am I going to say? Well, thanks. Awesome. Sign up. What's Jesus say instead? Foxes have holes, places to dwell. Birds of the air have nests, places to dwell. But the Son of Man, a messianic title for himself, has no place to lay his head. Totally clear. Instead of saying, hey, dude, I'm really excited you're going to join me, it's, I'm not quite sure you know what you're signing up for. Let me help clarify it a little bit for you. Or, or Jesus says to another guy, follow me. Now, we know in other instances, people are leaving their nets and just going. This guy says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. If I'm Jesus, what am I? Well, of course. Here, here's funeral time off. I mean, of course. Go bury your father. Jesus gives this reply. Let the dead bury their own dead. It makes total sense in English. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, when we read this, it sounds like the dude just lost his dad and has to go to the funeral. It seems so ridiculous that Jesus would say, Ah, the dead will take care of themselves. Follow me. What's really going on is in, in, with Jewish burial, it was a year-long process. Somebody would die, you'd put them in a tomb, and for the next year, the body would decompose. Then you would take the bones, and you'd put them in a bone box, an ossuary, and then you would place that 
in the, with your ancestors, okay? So let me go bury my father means I'm in this year-long period. I have a family obligation. And Jesus says, you know what? If, and he'll say this other places more directly. If that's more important to you than following me, then go ahead. I mean, he'll say other places. If anyone loves his mother, father, children, or himself or herself more than me, you're not worthy of me. And all Jesus is doing is saying, listen, if you had a 20-year-old daughter who there was a guy saying, yeah, kind of maybe her or maybe somebody else, you know exactly how you'd handle that situation. How much more does Jesus come into a world saying, listen, the rocks will cry out. I'm not hurting. <laughs> it's not like I'm lucky to have you. And I think the American church, when you agree, needs to be reminded he's not lucky to have us. I mean, Jesus loves everybody and pursues everybody. And, and we, we like that Jesus. But the Jesus that comes along and says, hey, if you've got other things going, it's okay. Go do those other things. Really? Yeah. Like, if it's really more important to you to wait out this year-long process, then go for it. Or, this one gets a little more confusing, not that those weren't. Still another said... I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replies, if I'm Jesus, I'm saying, well, of course. Your family's important. Love them. Let them know I'll take good care of you. Jesus instead says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for, the serv for service in the kingdom of God. Of course. Now, there's an Old Testament background to this story. Elijah has a protege named Elisha. Elijah invites Elisha into this kind of mentorship relationship. Elisha says to Elijah, I got to go say goodbye to my family. Elijah says, sure. <laughs> if you're Jewish and you're seeing Jesus do this and somebody gives you, Jesus, the same thing that Elisha gave to Elijah, and Jesus says no, what's Jesus saying? Following him is more demanding and will require more of you than following Elijah. He's making an implicit claim that he's greater than Elijah. And so this whole, like, plow, we're all familiar with plows, right? Back then, you had an ox, and you had a little plow, and if you're doing this, Guess where your ox is going? You're not plowing in straight lines. So Jesus, we could say it this way. No one drives backwards and is fit for driving on the 405 freeway. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. It makes total sense, doesn't it? Mm, go to Matthew chapter 13. Now, we started by simply saying, hey, a lot of times there's this pressure we feel to jazz Jesus up. And, and part of that's okay, and part of that can be really destructive because the assumption is that Jesus needs jazzing up. What's interesting is when you look at the ministry of Jesus, and he comes across people who have other options, it's just like, well, okay. Like, he comes across a dude that's really rich and wants to hang on to his money. And Jesus, it's, the text says Jesus loved him and let him go. But when Jesus comes across people who have kind of this ruthless clarity that they know there's nothing better than 
what he's got going. What's he say to them? I am willing. Be clean. What do you want me to do for you? See, I wonder how much of our American Christian properliness, properness, is a way to hide from God. I mean, how much of American Christianity actually keeps us from being so desperate and sloppy? I mean, what would happen if somebody walks in 20 hours sober and is a total mess? They don't know when to stand, when to sit, when to say amen. They've got nothing. And they interrupt the whole service and they just say, I need help. Does the security team kind of tackle them and take them to the back room? Or do you stop the service and you say, boy, did you come to the right place? Like, are we willing to let God bring us time and time again to the place where we come to recognize afresh, He is the most important thing. What's the reward of following Jesus? What's the reward of following Jesus? Jesus is the reward of following Jesus. And until you're convinced of that, you'll be using Jesus for other things. And discipleship to Him just won't work out real well. Like, if you think the reward of following Jesus is that your kids are going to behave. I give you my children as an example, as a counter example. If you think the reward of following Jesus, I mean, I mean, really, and we never say it this way, but we think the reward of following Jesus is something else besides him. So when we suffer, it's like, well, Jesus, what are you doing, man? Look at all that I've been doing. What's the implication? You owe me. Because I'm doing all this stuff for you. Now, does he bless us? And does he? Of course. But unless you're in it for him, there's gonna, something's going to come along and it's going to wreck you a little bit because it's like, oh, it isn't a formula. I don't just like insert religious deeds and he pours out blessing, at least the way I define blessing. Right? I, I told you last week, or I mentioned we have a little boy with Down syndrome. His name is Seth. Now, he's afflicted with Down syndrome and with severe cuteness. Okay? And literally, if you kiss him, prepare for an open mouth coming back your way. I'm just saying, I want, I want some of you to be prepared for that. When my wife and I, and some of you, some of you who know us kind of know this story. But my, he was our third child. And it was a huge deal for us to have a third child. We, were, we had two that we'd fought through some stuff with, with one of them for some special needs issues. And we were just like, ah, do we have a third? I don't know. We want to be Trinitarian, one family, three kids. I don't know. What do we do? Not so much. Not, that one didn't work. I won't do it for the next service. Oh, there's only one. Hallelujah. This is awesome. So we're, we don't have to be anywhere, do we? We can just stay here for four hours. <laughs> By the way, this is all introduction. <laughs> uh, when my wife and I first heard about this, uh, she was 22 weeks pregnant. So we had about three more weeks to go. I mean, I don't know how it all works, how they count the Chinese birth. That whole thing confuses me. But it was 22, was it 22 weeks? What? We had two more months, three more months. 
The kid wasn't there yet when we found out, all right? We find out he has Down syndrome. And we're crushed. I mean, we're, we're, I wish we were so godly. We could have just said, man, hallelujah, this is exact. We were disappointed. We were sad. We were angry a little bit at God. We were disappointed. If I just said that, we were really. And, 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 and we just had this whole long wrestling. Okay, God, what are you doing? We prayed that God would heal him and that he'd, he'd come out and be fine. And when, we, when they, they, they did the C-section, he pops out. It's like, yep, there's Down syndrome. Absolutely. And, and, and it was great because now you're seeing him. Instead of just living with a diagnosis, now we have our Seth. But there was one day early on, we took him to Disneyland, and it was special ed day at Disneyland. And everywhere we looked were adults who had Down syndrome. And, and we were just absolutely overwhelmed. Because it's, you don't graduate. <laughs> you don't, like, we're just going... So what do you do in those moments? This is what went on in my heart. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's all I got. I, it's too big. It's too hard. It's too complicated. I, it's way beyond me. What do you do? Jesus, son of David, have mercy. That's all I said over and over and over and over and over as we're walking around the park. Have mercy on us. Have mercy. I, it's too much. So sometimes we can work to get to this ruthless clarity ourselves. And then other times circumstances bring us there, right? Some of you are unemployed. And I thought I had this resume and this career trajectory. And I thought for sure it was this. And now circumstances bring you to the place where you're going, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. This relationship was going to be it. I mean, it was going to be fantastic. And then it blows up. A diagnosis, a disease, your kids are blowing out, whatever. And I don't want to say Jesus rejoices in the things that get us there. But I do want to say that Jesus does some of his best work when we're absolutely flat on our faces before him with no other option. And I wish it weren't that way, don't you? I just wish I lived in the purity of that all the time, but I got money. I, I don't need to pray for daily bread. I go buy some. Right? The Orange County lifestyle just kind of beckons us. Our Seth, who you're going to see around here, is probably the most delightful thing we got going in our lives. And the mercy God has shown us is the most incredible thing we've ever seen. I mean, literally, we just look at him and we just go, who wouldn't want one of these? I mean, he's awesome. And, and there are so many stories of how Seth has blessed other people and blessed us. We just go, okay, okay. I got to tell you one story. I'm sorry. See how I keep getting closer? You know, at some point you got to catch me. All right? I think I'll take a couple of steps back. We will get to Matthew 13. So, we love Seth. This is all in the name of getting to know my family and I. 
But it kind of goes along with the deal. Uh, we decide having a little baby with Down syndrome is so awesome that we, we want to adopt another one. And so we start looking at adopting another child. And we get in touch with these folks in Cincinnati. Um, by the way, who here is from the great state of Ohio? I feel the Lord's presence. Go to, uh, we, we talk to somebody in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, who arranges down syndrome adoptions. They get paperwork. We don't ha even have time to send the paperwork back before we get a call from a couple in Carlsbad. They have a four-year-old who has cerebral palsy. And it's been a brutal four years for them. And now they've just given birth to a little girl, three months prematurely, who has Down syndrome. Right, four-year-old cerebral palsy and brutal, three months premature, which is tough in and of itself, and Down syndrome. And understandably, they said, I don't think we can handle this. So we get in touch with them through this agency. And they come up, and they want to have an open adoption, which means they come visit the child. So they're interviewing us. They've been interviewing potential parents. How weird is that? To go to houses and interview potential parents. And so we're, we're like, a week before Easter, we're having this conversation, and, you know, I'm like, well, if, if little Bailey's with us, we'll raise her to love Jesus, and we'll raise her to love Ohio State. And you just got to know that's kind of how we're going to do it. And they didn't blink. And, and, and we had a great conversation, but we had no idea. How do you know how, that, how something like that goes? So they left. A couple weeks go by. There was all sorts of things that led us to believe this was it. Little Bailey had red hair. Our kids had red hair. Uh, there was this connection between my wife and the mom. I mean, it was incredible. And we thought, this is it. Well, they come back. She comes with the little four-year-old because the girl is still in the hospital. And she comes back, and we're just playing. And for two hours, she doesn't say anything. As she's leaving, we say, so, like, what are you going to do? And she says, we're going to keep We're going to keep her. And we're like, you're just now going to tell us this? We've been here for two hours on pins and needles wondering what, like, What's going on? And she's like, yeah. And here's what she says. It wasn't until I saw Seth with his brother and sister and family that I realized I would be robbing my four-year-old and our family of that sort of joy. Now, have mercy on me. Does he? Absolutely. There's a purity to the place when you come and you say, I got nothing. Have mercy on us. Matthew 13. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. So here's the story. You didn't have ATMs. You didn't have like 401ks. You didn't have like safety deposit boxes back in the first century. So what you would do if you had anything of value, you'd either build a safe into your wall and hire guards or you would bury it. And you wouldn't tell anybody where you buried it. And because the death rate, the mortality rate was just so ridiculous in the first century, there would be people who would die without having them told anybody where, where their treasure was. You wouldn't put an X there. 
And so this is a very common story. Uh, uh, somebody's working in a field, they come across a box of treasure, and they recognize it is of such value. It says, with great joy, they sell everything so they can buy the field and have the treasure. That, Jesus says, is what following him should be like. You come across him, and you realize there's nothing better than this. With great joy, I sell everything else to have him. Now, if we're honest, we still think there's treasure elsewhere, don't we? Whether it's success or the good life or happiness or whatever your definition is, we're still convinced there's treasure somewhere else. And Jesus would simply say to us, go for it. If you really think it's treasure, he gives the severe mercy of letting you see the futility of what you think is valuable. And he's always still there. And he's always saying, I'm the treasure. You've got to believe that. And so this morning, we just wanted to be reminded that what he's looking for, what this sort of community is to be about, is about reminding ourselves over and over and over again. The reward of following Jesus is Jesus. He's the treasure. And for us to keep pursuing the place where we come to that recognition. So would you do this? Would you take uh, stuff off your laps? And uh, as John comes up, I just, want to, uh, I just want to take a moment in silence. Don't know how this hits you. Maybe, maybe for you, it's just kind of a, a question of, well, well, what else is treasure? What else do I really think is treasure? And maybe there's just a bit of confession that goes on. Or, or maybe, like one of the things I do is, God, I'm desperate to be desperate for you. Like, I'm not right there, but could you bring me to that place again? Or maybe you are desperate. And I just want to suggest kind of the crazy thought that Jesus does some of his best work in that very place. So would you just close your eyes for a moment? And in a, in a world of images, let's just block them out. And in a world of noise, let's just be still. Or would you just invite the Holy Spirit to continue this conversation? These are his words. What is this for you? What's it mean for you? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariners Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.